Thank you for your worship. Um, Open up to the book of Acts chapter 9, and that's where we'll be this morning as we continue where we left off. And uh, this week and next week are going to go hand in hand as we look at the conversion of Saul, uh, who eventually becomes Paul. And so this week and next week we'll connect uh, very deeply. Today, as we look at Saul's conversion and we talk about grace and what it is and why we need it and why we should be thankful that we have it. And then next week, more or less what happens um, after we uh, climb the mountaintop For those who have been walking with Jesus in a long time, you know that as when you ascend the mountain, you know there's a valley on the other side. And so one of the things that Acts chapter 9 does is it shows us as we mature in Christ, as we're walking with God, and as we approach the mountaintop, we brace ourselves because we know the valley is on the other side. And so we'll see that next week as Saul begins to face persecution. Before we do that, uh, let me just sort of unrelated to the sermon, but uh, related to just pastoral care and, and our church and where we're at and what's going on. So the life of a pastor uh, can be a unique one. Last Monday, I got an email from a very sweet, precious, um, older saint in our church who I love deeply and they love me deeply. And the email uh, said something like this, hey pastor, um, I'm, I'm not coming to church. I wanted you to know that I'm okay, that I cannot wait to be back at church, but um, I've seen people that have come into our church online, they're not wearing masks. And so because I'm, I'm a, at risk, I'm gonna stay home until I get to a place where I'm comfortable. I said, listen, I love you so much. You express that conviction before the Lord. And if that's what you wanna do, then you please do that. And we love you and we will have a place ready for you when you come back. The very next day, I got another email from another sweet, precious, older saint whom I love deeply and they love me deeply, telling me that they were not coming back to church as long as we were requiring them to wear masks. And so I have this sort of juxtaposition as a pastor where one day I'm like, gosh, I want to make sure everybody wears masks so that everybody comes. And on the other side, the same person that I love, a different person, but I love in the same way is like, listen, I ain't coming. I don't want to wear the mask. All right. And so here's what I'm going to say to you just pastorally has nothing to do with Acts chapter nine, but here's where I sense we are as a church where we are beginning to grow as a culture and as a city. And just as we look at all of the things that are happening, we are a people that are generally running out of patience right now. We are short. People are angry. They are frustrated. They are disappointed. They are grieving. They don't know how to articulate these things in proper ways. And so the opportunity before us as a church is to make sure that we are displaying the fruit of the Spirit to a watching world that looks into our church that we display patience and hospitality and mercy and kindness. And can I just say this? Gentleness with one another. Both of those emails were entirely appropriate and they were received in the right tone. And I'm grateful that each one of them loved me enough to tell me what was going on and so that I could pray for them and help them. But it just made me aware as a pastor that we we're just all over the spectrum, you know, when it when it comes to this. And and I'll assure you this, your elders here, we hate wearing the mask and we hate trying to do the six feet. Uh, We hate it just as much as as you do genuinely like we we really really hate it we we hate the fact that we cannot meet in small groups on campus like we're accustomed to doing we we don't like that uh we don't want that we hope there's a day coming soon and quickly and um but until then um let us be patient with each other 
patient to your elders whom you've been so patient with uh, as we seek wisdom. We're just applying wisdom in the best way that we know how as the Spirit of God leads. And so we would covet your prayers and appreciate them um, even as we pray for you as well. Um, How many of you guys, uh, since COVID-19 began to happen, um, I told my kids the other day, they basically have had about a 22, 23-week spring break. It's been the longest spring break in recorded history, right? Enjoy yourself, it's fine. But I wonder this by show of hands, how many of you, uh, this is a violating HIPAA laws, but you're going to disclose it. How many of you at some point have thought, oh, maybe I I think I've got the Rona. Okay. I've come down with it. I've got the symptoms. I'm looking and like you start Googling stuff. Have you gotten that far where you're like, what's the symptoms of of Corona? Right. And you start looking and listen, if you've ever done that, listen, don't do it. It will make you freak out. All right. Because on the CDC website, it reads like this. Listen, if uh, you have mild discomfort, you may have the big Rona. If you have a slight headache, you might have the big Rona. If you have a cough or indigestion or your muscles ache or your big toe is aching a little bit, you possibly could have the big Rona. If you have blonde hair and blue eyes and a reddish beard, it's possible you have the Rona. Listen, um, it's one thing to go through WebMD or the CDC's website and trying to diagnose yourself with whatever the ailment is or whatever the disease is. But how about this? How about instead of trying to diagnose whether or not we have a physical sickness or a disease, more importantly today, I would argue and contend with you that it is more important for you to be able to diagnose yourself spiritually, to know whether or not you have a a spiritual disease that is plaguing you, Now, what we're going to read in Acts chapter 9 is probably one of the most famous conversion stories in all of the Bible. It's the story of how Paul was once saw how he became who he was. And if you grew up in church, you're you're mildly aware with this. If you were old enough, you probably had uh, this story on the flannel board, like the old school, like you remember hearing this from the very beginning. And what I think this does in this chapter, particularly in these first 19 verses, is it really gives us some descriptors of some ways in which we see God save Saul to become Paul and some characteristics of regeneration and what it means to be saved and and what exactly does that mean to walk with God in the way that Saul did and to have this radical transformation that exists within him. And so I want you to look in verse 1 as we begin reading in the text this morning. Read along with me where the Bible says this, that Paul, but Saul, still breathing the threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we are in this place where the early church has just been born, if you will. The Spirit of God has come at Pentecost, but yet there was a group of men, particularly led by Saul of Jewish descent, that their sole purpose in life, they were seeking to guard the fame and the glory of God and the name of their God, and they were seeking to persecute and put to death anyone who would speak contrary to the message that Saul had. And so Saul, make no mistake about it, he wasn't a, just a, a mild enemy. He was, a, was an outright persecutor who was putting to death not just men, but also women. 
Anyone who publicly identified with the person of Jesus, that proclaimed that they were saved by him, born again, regenerate, Saul was their number one enemy. And he spent a good many of years putting to death as many of these individuals as he possibly could. So when we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9, Saul's still breathing these threats out against all of these followers of Jesus. He goes and he says in verse 2, of belonging to the way, and this is probably just a reference to Jesus uh, quoting in John 14 earlier where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So the early on, they were identified as followers of Jesus. They followed the way, the name, and the place of Jesus. And so he goes down to Damascus. The light of the Lord appears. And I want you to notice in verse 4, as Jesus begins to talk to Saul, I want you to notice what Jesus says to Saul. Saul has spent his life persecuting the church. He has spent his life putting to death those who proclaimed to be followers of Jesus. But I want you to notice how Jesus addresses Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't make a statement where he could have rightfully said, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? No, Jesus says in this moment, why are you persecuting me? And the question is, why would Jesus say it in those terms to Saul? Not why are you uh, uh, beefing with, with, my, with my friend or, or my family? Why are you picking on these individuals? But, but rather, why are you actively putting these people to death? Because when you do that, you are persecuting not them, but you are ultimately persecuting me. The reason is, and this tells us something profound about Jesus and his understanding of the church. And don't miss this this morning. For Jesus, loving him and loving his bride are inseparable. We live in a culture today that would make the statement that they love Jesus, but they're not too particularly fond of the church. And sometimes there's good meaning for that. Churches mess up and churches make mistake, mistakes. Leadership makes wrong decisions from time to time. People get hurt. They get emotionally wounded. They, they get spiritually wounded. They, that your leaders are, are not perfect people. Yet at the same time, we understand the reality of the gospel is this, is that if I say I love Jesus, that I have to equally continue to strive like I'm pursuing him, I have to continue to press in to the church. Because hear this. The local church, my friends, the local church is plan A in God's kingdom. It's not the second plan. It's not the thing that God intends to fall back on if, if your guy or your girl doesn't get elected this fall. It's not the plan that, that God's going to fall back on if, if he doesn't have his way or there's not peace overseas. It's not the, the backup plan. No, it is the plan. The local church, it is plan A. I believe this so much that there was a time when I was in seminary and, and I was hearing this theme sort of go in and off and, and you can do a word study in the New Testament and you can study the word church, ecclesia, the called out ones, the gathered ones who have come together and over 95% of the instances in the Greek New Testament when the word church is used, listen to this, 95% of the time he is referring to the local body, 95 Less than 5% of the instances in which the Bible talks about the church, he's using it to describe it on a universal level, like we're all the church. 
And what does that tell us about how God views and he sees the church? Well, what it tells us is something pretty profound. He loves the church. He loves the broken people that live and exist and seek to to pursue Christ together in the context of community. He loves those people. And so when Jesus makes this statement to Saul and he says, look, why are you persecuting me and, and not the church? It's because he is identifying rightly with the idea that the church is the bride of Christ whom he died for. You remember this passage in, in Ephesians is talking about marriage, and, but it's informative to us and it helps us understand how the Lord views the church. So he's talking about husbands and how you're to treat your wives. And he says this, listen, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He loved the church so much that he did what? He gave himself up for her. That he might do what? Sanctify her, make her holy, uh, make her better, present her without blemish, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he can present the church as a gift to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The local church is plan A. And as equally as passionate as we are about the Lord, we we need equal passion in the context of how we view God's bride. And my wife is is home uh, with our kids, and uh, we've not brought our kids back primarily because we have a a two and a a four-year-old. They lick everything and touch everything. And so if we were to bring them up here, they'd be like licking the pews, walking down. Like they're not afraid of COVID. They have no concept of it. So we're like, y'all are just going to stay at home, isolated in the back bedroom, right? And uh, we're just going to keep you away from, from all germs. But if you were to say to my wife or you were to say to me equally, listen, Drew, I really, um, I love you, but I do not love your wife. Or you were to go to Haley and you would be, which is the more likely scenario. Haley, we love you. You are so wonderful, but your husband has got issues and problems and we don't like him. Carvin's like, well, we know, man, like we know this to be true. But if you were to say that to any one of us at any given level, how do you think the other spouse would, would feel about that? Well, if you're going to say that to me about my wife, I mean, I am a, a pastor, but I, I'm not afraid uh, to throw fists in the parking lot over something like that. All right. I have done some mild jujitsu in my time. Okay. So I, I've watched enough YouTube videos and MMA fights. I think I can take you down. But to say that would, would, would totally, uh, in essence, it would affect my relationship with you if you spoke about my wife that way or vice versa, her, her relationship with you. And so this is how Jesus and the church go together, the church being referred to as the bride of Christ. And so notice he goes on and he says in verse five, who are you, Lord? Saul talking to him. He thinks he understands that this is Jesus. And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now, one of the things that we need to understand and do is when we read scripture, the the first parameter in reading scripture, the first guide or rule is that, listen, we need to interpret scripture with other scripture. So when we're trying to understand meaning, we, we first go to, we, we go to the immediate place and the immediate text, but then we might have to jump out in the book and try to, to inform our understanding of this. Well, when you go to Acts 26, you get this other sort of view on Saul's conversion here. And I'm going to read this for you in, in Acts 26, 14. I want you to notice at the very end, he says, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Nothing new there. But then he says this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What a peculiar statement that Saul says that Jesus makes to him when he confronts him. What what do you do when you goad somebody? 
Well, literally what it, what it means is, is that you would take this rod or, or, or this stick and it would typically have a sharp end attached to it. And so when you were out and you wanted to sort of get the animals in line, you would take the, the prod or the goad and you would sort of, you know, slap it on the rear end, slap it on the hind legs, poke it a little bit to get it moving. All right. Listen, I told the first service this, um, wives, if you want to get your husband moving off the recliner and doing the honeydews, just get you a little stick with a sharp end and goad him a little bit. And we'll see how comfortable the recliner is on a Sunday afternoon. But you poke him a little bit. You prod him a little bit. And so here you have Jesus in this moment. He's reminding Saul, listen, um, you're getting goaded a little bit. In other words, you're watching all of these things happen. The death of Stephen. You're putting to death Christians. And, and obviously, there's something within you that's a little bit uncomfortable about this. You know it's not quite right because it's not quite settled with you. And so when Jesus makes this statement, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. He's like, I know that you know that this isn't right, but you're doing it anyway. And what that is in that moment for, for Saul in this place was this was the spirit of the Lord convicting him a little bit, going, hey, something's not right with this. The, the spirit of God sort of, sort of prodding him a little bit, saying, hey, wait a minute, that's a little bit off. You, you need to walk in faithfulness. This is wrong. And so here's the question today for us. Here's the question for me this week. What's, what's goading you and me today? Some of us, some of us are engaged in things that we know to be immoral and wrong before the Lord. And we're trapped and we're caught up in it, whatever the sin is. It could just be as simple as the fact that you're not believing today that God wants what's best for you and knows what's best for you. It could be as simple as you're, you're just having trouble trusting him and, and exercising your faith and, and leaning into him. It could be that you're lost in some deep, dark, secret sin that, that I don't know about, but you know and the Lord knows about it. And you know it's not right and you're caught up into it and you're entangled in this thing. And, and you, you have this spirit of conviction and you're wrestling with it and you're struggling with it. And if that's you this morning, then what I want to say to you lovingly as your pastor is good. That shows me that the grace of God is still at work in your life. When we experience true conviction of our sins and the wrongness and the error, and we experience the conviction, it is a good, gracious thing that God does in those moments. But here's the dangerous part. And here's the part that's a little bit scary, and, and, and honestly, it terrifies me as a pastor. There are some of us that are so entangled in sin, have been entangled for so long, that we are no longer experiencing any conviction of sin in our life anymore. Because we've been walking down a path that is ultimately just leading to, to destruction, and that ultimately is leading to death. What I want to say to you this morning is if you feel the Lord goading you like he does Saul. He's not doing that because he hates you, but he's doing that rather because he loves you and he cares for you. When we experience the hand of correction of the Lord in our life, it is a gracious and kind and it is a good thing. When he corrects us out of a posture of love and we know, hey, I need to, I need to work on this in my life. I need to re-examine my heart. I need to re-examine my, my lifestyle and what it is that I'm doing and experiencing. 
It's a good thing that God is is demonstrating his kindness to us. The text goes on in verse six and he says this, but rise and enter the city, you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose rose from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he didn't see anything. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor did he drink. For three days. Physically was, was incapable of opening his eyes couldn't eat, couldn't drink. This is supernatural intervention in his life. And so God's just saying, you're going to sit there and you're going to be quiet for a moment. You know, I think that some of us today, I I think some of us, while we, we don't necessarily need to do it for three days with no eating and drinking and to put scales on our eyes, but I think for some of us, for our mental health and our anxiety and maybe the pressures of the day, I think it would do us a whole lot of good to be like Paul, though not forcibly removed by the Lord, but simply just to say, I'm gonna pull away from social media and from TV and from the news. Listen, I did it a couple, a week ago when I was on vacation and I was off for about three or four days. It was the greatest thing for my heart and my soul that I had done in months because there was no comparing there was no wondering there was no visibly seeing destruction there there was no chaos it was just whatever I could control within my own experience and my own environment and there was renewal that takes place when God's people get away and get alone to be with him But I want you to see that for these three days, he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Now we eventually know that God removed the scales from his eyes and and he allowed him to see. Scholars identify uh, spiritual blindness in in one of two ways. They'll simply talk about it as, as one, irreligious blindness. This is the individual that finds himself in a position where um, they have enough money They have enough resources and time and and talent. They're capable. They're provided for. That they are completely uh, in a position and in a place where they do not need God whatsoever in their life. This is the, the irreligious blindness that I can do it the way that I, that I see it, that, that I can make my own uh, calls and, and shots and, and that I am sufficient enough. I have enough family support. I have a good job. Uh, I have enough money coming in. I'm in this position in place where, where I don't need the Lord. That's, that's the irreligious, but there's also the religious blindness. And this is often for the person that finds himself growing up in the church context but it's become puffed up with, with pride and, and the way the Bible would just describe it as a, as a self-righteousness that exists and, and that maybe they too are, are leaning into their own abilities or they've just gotten so casual with the things with God that it's sort of devolved into just meaningless religion and no relationship. These are those that are religiously blind. And so the question then comes up, well, how do I know if I'm beginning to see things How do I know if I'm really walking with God and I'm beginning to see like it is that Paul begins to see as the scales come off of his face? I think there's a couple of ways to know this. Number one is this, as I'm growing in my understanding, I'm growing in my amazement and my wonder towards the grace of God. If I'm maturing and I'm walking with Jesus, I should be coming overwhelmingly, just overwhelmed to the point where I recognize how good and kind God is as I begin to understand how wicked and depraved I actually am over here. And the more I understand God and the more I understand myself, the more I recognize how deeply I need him in my life every single day at every moment of my life. 
And I become overwhelmed with with that understanding, like how and why would God, the the God of this universe, interact on his throne with me and and choose me to be a part of his kingdom and doing the things that he's called me to do. I grow in my sense of wonder and amazement. Number two, I think I become more transparent as I'm walking with Jesus. What this means is for, for our church is that We want to be authentic in how we talk about the Lord, how we talk about our struggles, how we talk about our issues in life. And listen, we we can't talk about those issues in the pews. But for us, we we said we do it in our circle, whether it's on Zoom or, or whether it's at someone's house. That's where we invite other people into our struggles and into our livelihood. And we become more transparent about where we are about what we're thinking and and what we're processing. But I think the third thing that would go hand in hand will be a sense of graciousness and generosity that grows with you. As you come to more fully understand God, you become a more gracious and gentle person. And kindness pervades your your personality and and your spirit and and you're generally there to to help and, and to display that generosity to others. How transparent, how, how gracious, how, how amazed have you been at the goodness of the Lord? Verse 10 continues on and he says this, there was this disciple at Damascus named Ananias and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, verse 11, rise and go to the street called Straight and to the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul for behold, he's praying. And he was seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to our saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind us all on all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. I want you to see in verse 15, I want you to see this phrase, the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. Here you have this murderous, wicked man. Make no mistake about what Paul was doing. It it was pure wickedness and it was evil as he put young believers to death. And then this moment in verse 15, he says, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings. This teaches us two things that I want to close with this morning. And I think that as some of you are, are returning, you've, you've been away, you've come back, whether you're a, a student at Southwestern Seminary or one of our TCU students, uh, or you're new to the area and coming in or, or watching us online, I believe there's a word here that, that you need to hear in these next few moments. That when we look at Saul's life, when we look at God changing him into Paul and and making him new, we learn two things about him. Number one is this. Our past does not disqualify us from experiencing the grace of God. Your past, no matter what you've done, how wrong, how illegal, how immoral, how sinful it might be, no matter what you've done, the message that you need to hear this morning is this, is that it does not disqualify you from experiencing God's grace this morning. In the same way that God saved and redeemed Saul is the same way that God seeks to have relationship with you here this morning. 
And he just wants you to hear this, this simple truth spoken over you that your past does not disqualify you. And so don't live that way. Don't live in shame and in condemnation for what you did yesterday. But call upon the name of the Lord. Seek forgiveness from him, to be reconciled with him, and then tell him, Lord, teach me how to walk with you, to, to walk alongside you. Don't let it disqualify you from experiencing his grace. The second thing is, is that your past doesn't disqualify you from future usefulness. I used to not think this was true for a long time in my life. I used to think that, that for the most part, that I had to be far enough away from a sin removed or, or an action for God to use me. And I, and I got into this place early on in my walk where it was really more about uh, positive thinking and psychology in my head and telling myself uh, the, the right things to, to move me along. And, and I was so deeply misinformed that it really just came back to just trying to understand this idea that, that certainly there, there are uh, things that can disqualify us from positions in, in, in places. So, so don't hear me wrong on that. But, but our past doesn't disqualify us from future usefulness. No matter what you've done in this life, God can and he will use you if you let him. And if you yield to him and just say, God, move in my life, use me at my TCU campus, move, use me in my sorority or my fraternity, use me at my job or in my home or, or at my seminary, use me in my neighborhood. It's a simple prayer. God, use me for your kingdom and your glory. Like what a simple, subtle thing to just ask God on a regular basis, God, would you use me today? To point someone to you and, and the fact that you are worthy and that you are good. For the text goes on and it ends, and he says in verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my, the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. He entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have come has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized. We've talked a lot over the past few weeks about how angry everyone is. People are incensed, not just in Fort Worth, but you see it in places like Seattle and, and Portland. You see it in New York and Chicago and Detroit. You see it in Dallas. Pe people are upset. They're mad, and, and, and you, you talk to any given person, they'll give you five different reasons on why they're upset. And everybody has their own cause and their own, their own slant on it. And, and as a pastor, I often I had this moment this past week where as I was looking and, 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 and watching the news and a couple other things, and you, you see just these, these videos that are coming out. If you're not watching, they're, they're unprecedented. Really, I hate that word. We've used it too much. But it really, like, what we're seeing, it, this is unreal. It, it really is. We're watching history, you know, sort of unfold. Nothing's been like, quite like this in a very, very long time. But then the Lord brought back to mind a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul's talking to the church and he's talking to a church who is watching similar things in Corinth. And Paul has this real reminder to him and he says, look, in the case of, in their case, the God of this world, he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
So here's why that passage tags into the first half of chapter 9 in Acts. Were it not for the grace of God intervening in Saul's life, he never would have became Paul and never would have been changed. Were it not but for the grace of God to intervene in places like Portland, in places like Seattle, in places like Dallas and, and New York and Detroit and even Fort Worth, even here in this church, were God not to intervene, but we would be like Saul. But for the grace of God, we're not. Why? Because God has unblinded our minds to be able to see the truth of the gospel. And so what do we do with that? Well, our answer and our our end is simply this. We want to pray that God would open the eyes as we tell and as we proclaim that God would break the scales loose and that people would see Jesus for who he really is. So this week, we have uh, students that are going back to school. We've got, um, and they're, they're a little nervous and scared. We've got mamas and daddies who, who have been um, worked up all summer long on, on should they send their kids back, should they not. Uh, we have some in our church that uh, are rearranging lifestyles because they're going to, like they never thought they would homeschool. They're homeschooling this year uh, because of their conviction of COVID. We've got administrators and, and folks that everything begins. Our, our TCU students are, are here back. Uh, and, and everybody has differing levels of, of fear and anxiety. Everybody's sort of in a different place. And but here's the prayer today as we end. Is that God would use in the midst of how his people, God's people respond in a pandemic to be different and to be set apart from how the world is responding right now because they don't see the full picture. We don't know what God's ultimately up to in all of this, and we're not God. We have his word, and, and that's what he's given us, and we can kind of take a guess from time to time and a, and a gander down that road, but ultimately, we don't know what he's doing. But I do know this. Every time God goads me and, and prods me with a stick, he's doing it with the purpose of bringing me back unto himself so that I will pay more attention and walk a little bit closer with him. So in your life today, what is it that God's goading you? What stick is he nudging you with? Not because he's mad at you or disappointed, but just because he's like, hey, I want you to be different and I want you to be better. I want you to become the person that God intends for you to be. I'm going to invite Josh and the team back up on stage with me. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to respond in a time of song as we conclude our service this morning. Bow your heads and pray with me before the Lord. God, you're you're good to us. We pray that you would speak to us. Your Holy Spirit would move here in this room. Lord, I, I know for every person in here, we all come to today, to this moment, in, in different places and, and in different circumstances. And so, God, I pray that your spirit would help convict us of that, that we wouldn't feel shame or or condemnation today, but, Lord, we would find freedom, the freedom that ultimately only comes with those that are walking closely with you. Lord, we desire to be in relationship with you and to know you, to hear your voice, and to walk faithfully with you. We pray for our teachers that go back this week, that you would bless them, that you would spare them and, and keep them healthy and, and safe. Our, our high school students, our middle school students that go back in the weeks to come, Lord, we pray that you would keep them safe and, and you would protect them, that they would be bold witnesses on their, on their campus. 
Lord, I pray for these TCU students, Lord. I pray that you would use them to bring revival, to bring awakening on that campus. I pray that you would use them to be salt and light, that you would use them to multiply your gospel out into this city here in Fort Worth, that you would use them to do mighty and great things. God, would you protect them from sickness? Would you let them desire holiness above all other things and and bless them as they study and as they prepare and as they enjoy their time here? Lord, most of all, would you change us as your people? Would you convict us of our sins? And bring us back, Lord, to you. Father, move in these moments. And God's people said, amen. Would you stand and respond in song as Josh and our team lead? I'll be down front. We'd love to pray for you, pray over you. Matt Getty will be down here. We'd love to pray for you uh, if you need prayer this morning. And uh, let us worship the Lord now in spirit and truth.